Thank you for tuning in to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. This month, we're celebrating first-generation alumni, and we have the privilege of having Cassidy Nolan with us today. He is the co-founder and managing member of Mach 1 Hot Sauce. He's also a Marine, and so thank you for your service. (laughs) Thank you for paying your taxes. I always have to say that. Really, really appreciate all the vets that we have in the program, and anywhere, obviously, but definitely in the program. Yeah, Cassidy, let's just uh, kind of start off hearing about your background, your origin story. Sure. Yeah, origin story. Grew up in uh, this little farm town called Petaluma, and uh, I divorced parents, so I split my time between Petaluma and Napa. My father was a chef, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, we didn't really have, like us many divorced families, didn't really have like a lot of money between us, you know, didn't really come from like wealth and means. So everything that we wanted or like desired to have, you had to really work for on your own. You had to be really creative. So from a really young age, like I would wash cars and like, I mean, just the quintessence of like this, like childhood Americana of like, I'm going to mow lawns to get money to buy you know, candy or something like that, right? Like, we'd always get creative, like bake sales. And I was very fortunate at the time, you know, like I grew up in this, it was like a low income housing complex. So there was a bunch of families, like young families. Where's your mom from again? She's from Barranquilla, Colombia. So she's a naturalized citizen. And she came to America in the late 60s or late 50s, I want to say. She landed in New York. So on my mom's side, they're they're from Barranquilla, Colombia, but um, they grew up or they kind of put their roots down in Queens, New York. And she was in the 60s and 70s. She was a huge grateful, still is to this day, Grateful Dead fan and um, Rolling Stones. And like she left school at 17 to follow them around. Like when we talk about hippies and like that was my mom, like flea collar. <laughs> everything hence the reason why my name is cassidy it's a grateful dead song and a lot of people don't know that oh yeah did not know that so education was never like it was more of just like a check in the box but it was never like a discussion i didn't even really know what college was until i was in the marine corps many years later and you know when i was a young kid like i really wanted to be i think the first job or like profession i really wanted was to be an inventor and I didn't even know what that was. Hmm. I think the equivalent now would be like, you know, an engineer of some sort, right? But like nobody at that time told me that that was an, even a thing. So education to me was like, it just, I never really applied myself that hard or I never really thought much of it. I just always wanted to like go outside and play and like be with friends and like challenge myself. And I did Boy Scouts and I did wrestling in high school and played football and then yeah, I joined the Marines. And I, at the time, you know, and there's a lot of in between there, my mom ended up losing custody of us. But I really wanted to like get out or like have this upward mobility that a lot of people had that I saw when I was in high school. And it just never seemed like something that was obtainable to me in my sort of situation. So the fastest way that I saw was to join the service. And I really wanted to work for like the CIA or the NSA doing intelligence because I always enjoyed like 
I was the guy in high school that would go to the library and like just read all of the like all of these books on like espionage and the Vietnam War because yeah, it's just all the spy books, right? <laughs> all the spy books, yeah. I just found it so fascinating this this cat and mouse game, this like cloak and dagger kind of thing. And when I took what's called the ASVAP, when I took the test to get into the service, I scored really high. And the, my recruiter said, you can do any job you want. And I said, I want to do intelligence. And I did that. And I did that for five years. So I had a top secret clearance and did two deployments to Afghanistan in 2010 and 12. And um, I ended up getting married after my first deployment to my wife. And we've been together for almost 13 years now. She was pregnant on my second deployment, and when I came home, I think I, at that time I thought, in a very like arrogant way, I thought if I was going to work for the CIA, they would have tapped me by that point. They would have like found me. Yeah, that's not necessarily how that always works out. So, I was not selected. I was given the opportunity to like reenlist. I didn't want to because I figured the wars were going to still keep going. So I really just kind of wanted to be there for my daughter and kind of get out of this environment for the time. And I think like realistically. It would have been great if they said like, hey, you could take six months off, you know, and then come back to this. It probably would have probably would have changed my opinion. But how did you hear about the Marines? It were do they come to recruits on campus, you know, in high school? How were you exposed to it? So I think for most people of my generation, you know, 9-11 was a pretty influential moment. And that was kind of, I think, for those that were you know, cognizant at the time, it was like that day you can remember exactly where you were at. And I graduated high school in 2008. So that was, you know, the September 11th attacks happened when I was in sixth grade. And from that time to the time that I graduated, like patriotism was still in like full swing. And there was Marine recruiters, Army recruiters. And then I was dating this girl at the time. And her father was a Marine Vietnam vet. And he, total gentleman, really nice guy. And he asked me, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate high school? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go to the college, but in Napa Valley College, this community college. And I was working at this restaurant, and, you know, I'll just kind of do that. He never really pushed it on me, but it was more of like, well, if you were thinking about doing anything else, this would, this would be it. You know, and it was like either the Marines or nothing, really. I think the first day of community college, my first class, it was like an Algebra two class. And I remember we were talking about like polynomials and I was like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> like close the buck. And I went and I talked to the recruiter that day. And then uh, six weeks later, I was in boot camp. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Just out of curiosity, I mean, uh, were you still in close contact with your mom at that time? And, you know, what did your parents, did your parents have any say or do they care? Unfortunately, because of my mom's condition, like I said, she had lost custody of us. I didn't talk to my mom for from the time that she lost custody of us in 2004, I didn't talk to her until 2011. So it was about a six, seven year stint and talked to her. Um, we lived with my dad and my dad is a chef. So I always grew up in a kitchen. And in fact, my parents met at Aspen, Colorado, where my mom was working a job at this restaurant just to pay for money to go to the next Grateful Dead show. And my dad was actually a chef there and he was like skiing and mountain biking and next thing you know they ended up getting married but with my mom though she suffers from mental health issues we'll say and it's frustrating because i know that she did the best that she could with what she had and she loved her children but she just had a lot of internal struggles that unfortunately i think that she really lost in the end and i was very bitter and i had a lot of resentment towards her and it's like stockholm syndrome because my when my father left 
obviously my parents got divorced when I was really young. I was about six years old when they got divorced. You have this, and I think a lot of people that come from similar backgrounds, they they kind of grow up having this like lack of self-worth or feeling of I'm not good enough or whatever it is. So then you have this like Stockholm syndrome where then I really gravitate towards the other parent because that's the parent that stayed and like fiercely loyal, you know, like it didn't matter what my mom did. Like that's my mom. She's watching us. And, you know, I have kids of my own now and the stuff that my mom did or let happen, I would have a lot more gray hairs today if that were to happen with my kids, you know, like to me, it's just unacceptable. And it's not even like, oh, there were different times. Like there might've been different times, but like negligence is negligence. You know what I mean? So kind of processing that took a long time. And, it, and even to this day, like, I wish I could tell you things are on the ups, but mental health is a, is a serious thing. You know, drug addiction is a serious thing. And if you grew up in the sixties and seventies and you're following around the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones, like, you know, you weren't a squeaky clean person, right? you know, working a nine to five, thinking about your 401k. So that's the type of person that she was. And my dad was very much an opposite of that. And he struggled with alcohol himself and, and still to this day. So those are the type of environments myself and my siblings kind of came from. Unfortunately, there was a lot of like trauma, right? Like what we just call trauma today. And um, I think the biggest things that for sure put me on the right path were Boy Scouts. I had a lot of really good mentors. My wrestling coaches are just high school coaches in general. And then uh, my time in the military, for sure. So you, you kind of get like these older brothers, second dads, if you will, kind of thing. So mm -hmm. good role models. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome to hear. So from kind of leaving the, the Marines to now, um, what, what have you been doing? So I got out in 2013 and I really wanted to have just like something of my own, you know? And the guy that I was telling you about earlier where I was dating his daughter, he had a porta potty business in Napa, which is kind of, you know, we laugh at it, but it's very lucrative because of OSHA. You know, you need to have uh, one toilet every eight workers and grapes are picked by hand. So in Napa County, there's always porta potties. It's never going away, right? It's never going to happen. So he had this porta potty business and I told him, I said, hey, look, I'll, I'll come work for you. And I'm going to go to the junior college, the same one that I dropped out of many years ago, and just get my associates in business because it's going to pay, you know, there's like a stipend that I get from the Department of Veteran Affairs and uh, I'll run the business for you, you know, like I'll buy the business off of you. And I'm doing this and I try and purchase the porta potty business for like $120,000, but I have no collateral. I have no real capital to like spend. You know, the only thing that I had in my name is a $8,000 truck. So the bank naturally denies the loan because the liquidity is only 20%. So that they think it's too risky. And um, at that point, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I guess I should just keep going to school because if I get maybe my bachelor's, I could still keep getting this stipend, right, from the VA. And somebody had said, hey, look, because I was looking at Sonoma State, they're called like a veteran certifier. Basically, they're the people at the college that, that certify your courses and send it to the VA. She said, you know, Cassie, there's this really good business school not too far away. It's called the Haas School of Business. Have you thought about applying? And I said, really? Um, never heard of it. So it was never part of my repertoire. And she says, yeah, you know, I think you do really well in school here. And I never, like, after post-Marine Corps, I never found trouble in school. 
I learned how to study. I learned how to be disciplined. There wasn't any distractions like what I used to have when I was younger. It was like, here's the work and 50% of the job is just showing up, right? 30% of the job after that is, is participating class. And then 20% is actually doing the homework and the tests and the quizzes. Because if, if you show up and you ask questions, you're going to learn and retain so much of it. And then the homework and everything else just kind of reinforces it, right? So I ended up doing really well at community college, which told me I should apply to this business school. And the problem was, is that uh, in order to transfer to Haas, you had to have at least Calc 2. And I was still at Algebra 2. So I had to take Algebra 2, Pre-Calc, Trigonometry, Calc 1, and then Calc 2. You couldn't take them in unison. You had to take it incrementally. So then I started loading up all these other classes just to fill the time. When I finally did transfer, I, I transferred with like five, I have like five associates, like mathematics, natural science, uh, business. I have like a CSU transfer. I have all these. Yeah, it's kind of comical. But that feeling when I got accepted into Haas was probably one of the, the greatest feelings that I had. What I really enjoyed about Haas is if you made it to Haas, chances are you're curious. You're not afraid to ask questions. You're not afraid to go out on a limb and say like, well, I think it's this. There wasn't a lot of politics that got in the way. Like a lot of the times we're just looking at a brass tax. You know, you would think like very rational rather than irrational. So I loved all the classes, with the exception of finance. I loved, you know what I mean? Because it was, you're surrounded by just, and I felt like the dumbest one in the room and I loved it because it meant I had the most to gain, you know? And then graduated Haas, where I went to Haas from 2017 to 2019. Took a job, I did you know, recruiting, and I worked as an accountant for the Clark's company. Did terrible. I did just enough, like I could, I'm good at finding patterns in math to do the bare minimum, but I never like, knowledge was never really like solidified, if that makes sense, you know? It was just more of like, what are the steps that I have to do to like balance this out, you know? COVID hit, 2020, we ended up buying a house back in Napa because everyone was working from home and I was working in Pleasanton, so... We figured, look, we'll just buy a house in Apple. We'll figure it out. Bought the house June 15th, 2020. The house burnt down August 18th, 2020. So we're only in the house for like two months and three days. And then we lived in a uh, hotel for a while. I quit the Clorox company naturally just to be with my wife and kids. I took a job with LVMH Domain Chandon and their like special projects because I was good with Excel. And at that time, I realized I wanted to like go back to school and get my MBA because the only jobs I was being offered were accounting positions or finance positions, which aren't bad, like if that's for you, but it's just for me, it was never something that I really enjoyed doing. It was something that I could do. And when I was getting my MBA, I really settled on uh, making hot sauce because up until that point, like I, like I said, my father was a chef, is a chef still, and my mom always grew up in a kitchen too. She was basically like a baker. And um, when I was at Cal, I was like making beer with uh, some fellow veterans, like in their apartments. And that like passion for the fermentation process, the lactobacillus fermentation, I started applying that in other places. Like, okay, I can make beer. Uh, what else can I do? I can make sourdough. Okay, what else can I do? Can I make, you know, hot sauce? So I started making hot sauce and when I was getting my MBA, I just really doubled down on that because it was the cheapest thing to make. Like it fulfilled the passion that I have for making food, right? But it was incredibly cheap to do compared to when I made beer because making beer is super fun, but it can be very expensive when you start buying out all your material. 
because you need to have like fermentation kegs and cleaning material and brushes and heat exchangers and bottles and just like uh, everything else. And I thought like, okay, I don't want to spend like $8,000 on beer making equipment again. I could just spend 50 bucks on a big container and I could start fermenting hot sauce peppers for significantly cheaper. So I did that and through time, like in 2021, it got to a point where I was making so much that I was giving it out. And then people were saying, this is really good. I think you have something here. And like, I'll actually buy a bottle from you. And at that point, I thought I was like, okay, I think I have like a winning formula. You know, do you want to continue doing this? So when I was getting my MBA, I really doubled down on like a hot sauce business plan and got all the paperwork done and ended up getting headhunted for this director position at a nonprofit where I was matching veterans with service dogs mm -hmm. or they were rescue dogs that we were training to be service dogs. And I did that for almost 10 months before I got to a point where like, hey, look, if you don't jump off on this hot sauce thing, you're never going to do it because you've always been scared to do it because you're married, you have kids. And if not now, when, you know, and that's such a hard thing, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs or people who want to be entrepreneurs is like that fear of failing. But I think I just got to like a point in time where the fear of not trying was greater than the fear of failing. Hmm. It's actually interesting to say that because crossing that threshold or jumping off that cliff, it doesn't happen very often, actually. Because for a lot of people that I know that are interested in entrepreneurship, it's one of those things where, yes, I totally see, you know, people making up all the excuses, all having all the external reasons, right? Externalities of, of why they can't make that leap of faith right now. And I will add something to that because even after you make that leap of faith and say it doesn't completely pan out the way you want to, not saying it won't, right. I think you're going to be a, a knockout success. But you know, even, even if it doesn't, it's to continue pushing, keep trying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's something like, what is it? 80% of businesses fail in the first three years and 90% of startups fail, right? So I think a lot of that comes down to the person, unrealistic expectations, or maybe just like ulterior motives where you're like, no, I just was looking to get bought out or I thought we'd be a unicorn. And you're like, in what world? You know, like temper your expectations. Right. It's definitely hard, but I can't really see myself trying to go like, I could not in any world be like, hey, you're going to be an accountant again for Clorox. Like, no, I'm not. I'm going to go work at McDonald's. No problem. No shame. It, you know, <laughs> that's a great company or in and out, right? Like, I enjoy the freedom and the creativity. It's like some of the best days are just driving out and making a sales call. We're in 17 locations now. And like a lot of it's in Napa and Sonoma County. We've only been doing this for a short time, but a lot of private grocers were now could be found on uh, Walmart Marketplace that so we got accepted into that. So amazing. Yeah, it's we're definitely trying to get a lot of traction and trying to build build quick. And that's just for trying to like have sustainability and like eventually profitability. But the biggest thing that I always focused on was like make the right product, you know, and, and I know that perfection is the enemy of progress, but we really try to put a lot of emphasis on like depth for the customer, for like the flavor, the pairing, the label, the name, everything. Oh, the pairing. I like that. I like that idea. The pairing. Yeah. I don't feel like that's talked about enough. No. In the industry is, is hot sauce can actually be a like, almost like a condiment. It is a condiment, but 
a pairing condiment where like it can actually elevate the food. Right. Let me ask you this, you know, as a, as a fellow entrepreneur, what, what are some of the biggest challenges or what are some challenges you're encountering right now that maybe, you know, Hossi, a Haas alumni listing might be able to help out with? I love that. I think the biggest things for me have been getting like exposure, like attraction. Cause I think about like, if you've ever been to like dive bars or, or some small indie concert in LA or something like that, like there could be a great band, an amazing band, and they just never get picked up because a producer never found them, right? It's kind of a similar thing here where it's like, I know that we have a really good product and the only way for me to get people to take it is if they try it, but it's hard to get people to try it if they don't see it and just, so getting exposure is difficult, you know, and it's like, you have to rely a lot on social media, yeah, digital space. I treat my customers as employees, right? And that's like a big thing too. I think a lot of entrepreneurs lose sight of that too, is that you need to treat everybody as an employee. And I treat my customers as employees because they could do a lot of heavy lifting for me for free. And that is they could talk about it. They could tell people you need to pick it up. They can make recommendations to stores. That's been a really helpful thing too. Like if I do like a demo at a grocery store, you know, some people will say, you should really have this one place in Truckee, California, I carry your hot sauce. I'll reach out to them for you, you know, something like that. But as far as like having somebody help, the biggest thing is um, get yourself a bottle, 100%, and try for yourself. You know, like I want to, <laughs> I want to convert people into uh, customers for sure. It's a Mach One hot sauce. Yes, sir. How'd you come up with the name? All right, a lot of depth there. If you're able to name something in succession, especially with hot sauce, where like it incrementally gets hotter, and you could say it's one, two, three then you as a consumer can immediately say like, okay, three is going to be hotter than the two and the three is definitely going to be hotter than the one. And then like the label can tell that tale too, that that would be a really fun thing. And then if you were to have one, two, and three on a, like the real estate, like on a shelf, that would be a really good eye catcher, right? And I like that name mock. It sticks with you. It's a unit of measurement. In marketing sense, the sound sticks with customers a lot longer than like any other sound, I guess. And that's the reason why the woman that created Spanx, she did it with an X because it was that foreign sound. So I really liked that aspect of it. So I just felt like Mach 1, 2, and 3 really just built. It had a lot of like depth. It had a lot of layers that I could use. That, you know, maybe maybe the only thing fast, I don't know if rockets or spaceships are, are faster than that, trying to exit orbit. But uh, that, that would maybe be the hottest. <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm glad you bring that up. We only have the three sauces right now, but we do have like other ones in the works. And it's like, you don't want to just immediately go to the hottest because then you don't have any room to grow. Right? Right, right. So we do want to do one that's called the X-15. And that was a experimental aircraft that was basically testing how fast like our aircraft can, like from a height and speed thing, how fast and sustainable it could go. And it went something like Mach 5 or Mach 6. Yeah. And um, that's the fastest aircraft that's ever gone. So if you see, uh, if you saw that movie Maverick with Tom Cruise, he approaches Mach 9 or Mach 10. Like, I mean, that's, oof. I mean, the aircraft itself, yeah, it's just, it's not going to happen. We're not there yet. That's completely fictitious, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess back to the hot sauce, uh, we'll definitely include a link in the description for any listeners to find your hot sauce, but you, you have mentioned on Walmart Marketplace, you can search for Mach 1 and, and find it there? Yes. Okay. 
That's spelled M-A-C-H. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, M-A-C-H-1. You know, one thing that I commonly talk about with budding entrepreneurs is the idea that entrepreneurship is very diverse. Yes. Right? It's not this one singular idea of just starting a business, period. I can break it down into, you know, a dozen buckets. But for me, some of the big buckets are, you know, there's lifestyle entrepreneurship versus high growth, you know, tech entrepreneurship, right? Completely different types of businesses. A hundred percent. Then you have obviously, you know, B2C and then B2B, right? Completely different in many aspects, right? From go-to-market to operations and whatnots. And I think a lot of people don't have clarity or they were never told or mentored on what kind of entrepreneurship is, a, is the best fit for them. And so they go into entrepreneurship thinking they should be doing this, B2B, high tech, right? When they just really want a hot sauce business, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's something that I, some people I feel like get lucky. Uh, I feel like I got lucky. I, I kind of fell into the right kind of entrepreneurship for myself. And I think for you as well. And I think we fall into it because it originates from a passion. Yes. Versus originating from just a pure desire to start a business for the sake of starting a business sort of thing. And uh, you're meeting a demand, right? Because people are interested in your hot sauce. And so I think that's, in my opinion, the best kind of entrepreneurship. Are you doing this alone? The other co-founder is my wife, believe it or not. And uh, her and I are a, a dynamic duo, crack team. Couldn't have done it without her. It's hard to express it other than saying that like, we wouldn't have the product that we have now without her input along the way of like trying the hot sauce, like what's it missing? You know, it was her idea like, hey, we should really do tomatoes instead of this, right? Like little things here and there. I will say that I do take care of a lot of the business aspects of it because it is something that I'm professionally trained in, but it's something that I enjoy doing. So her and I are the ones that that really created it together and we went into it together. So we're both, it's 50% owned by her too. And I wouldn't change any of that, but I would like to just go back for a second and completely agree with what you were saying about like entrepreneurism. Cause I think a lot of people do really miss that. It's like, there is different types. And I remember reading this one case study at Haas where it's like these two gentlemen created this mobile washing service where like, you know, Every, all your dirty laundry goes in one bucket and then they pick up that bucket and they dry clean it and they bring it back to you. And it was like finding a lot of traction. But I think that going out of business, because at the end of the day, they realized they didn't really want to do that business. Like they just, they started it, I think more of a proof of concept. And then when it started to become successful, but it had challenges, they just folded. But that really stuck with me of like that concept of like, is it really more of a lifestyle? Is it really more of just like you want to be a unicorn? And I, I've never had a lot of, for me personally, I just don't have a lot of like sympathy for um, the like, go, 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 you know, the raise capital, series funding, just to say that you did. And the like, at the end of the day, you don't even have like a viable product. Everything is like still theory. And I just think the whole thing is like a scam to me. This is me. This is a casting all opinion. Like it's totally fictitious. You don't even have like a physical product or concept and a lot of people are just like chasing a title yeah and i'm much more and it's hot sauce so if, you know i'm sure you've read porter's competitive strategy like low barriers to entry relatively low barriers to exit like this is going to be a slow incremental growth it's a volume game right you know this isn't something that you could really have tack on like a high uh, price to it 
And that's okay with me. I enjoy the biggest joy that I have personally is when people try it and they'll be like, that's, that's really good sauce. I really like it. Can I buy another one? Yeah. Does the name Tom Frainer ring any bells to you? No. I'm going to out him really quick. Okay. This gentleman has had such an impact on my life in more ways than I can explain. He went to Haas as an undergrad, graduated, and then took his first job in finance at the Clark's company in Oakland, right? And then they paid for him to go to get his MBA, and he got his MBA at Haas, but he was under contract, and he worked there for 10 years, and he made it to director, which is, that's a big deal. As you know, being a director is a big deal. On the second day, he quit because he technically fulfilled his requirements, right? And he quit. And he's like, you know, I was making $80,000 when $80,000 was $80,000, right? Now, this is back in like the 80s, 90s. And he was in free fall. He didn't know what to do. And his brother and sister-in-law had this baking company called Semi Freddy's in Redding, California. And they were just working in a small little shop. And he lived, he's been doing that for 35 years. And he came into one of our classes as a guest speaker. I took an entrepreneurial class with Peter Malloy, who is a co-founder of Sabra Hummus Dip. And he came in and, you know, obviously it's a bread company. So he let everyone, gave everyone a loaf of bread. (laughs) His story was like, he was so anti just this corporate America kind of thing. And not in like a bad militant way, but more of like, find your passion. And he didn't grow up in a restaurant. He never baked before. But when he started just doing something that he'd never done before, and he's like, man, I really enjoy doing this. I reached out to him on LinkedIn and I said, hey, Tom, I don't know if you remember who I am. Why would you? But I was in this class with Peter Malloy and he came in. I was wondering if I could talk to you. I'm currently working at Clorox myself. And uh, he just was like, yeah, come on through. And we toured the facility. And I mean, like he had so much passion on the bread and he's the owner of this multi-million dollar company. You know, it's that kind of person that, that entrepreneur. And it's like, it cost him a lot. And he told me, you know, there was pretty high price to pay personal relationships and, you know, this like dogma that you got to live with. But he absolutely gave me so much motivation of like, you know, find something that you like to do, even if it's off the beaten path. Yeah. And it's, I think all this to tie back to, you know, first generation immigrants of sorts, you know, it's very fitting in, in some ways, you know, to, to come to America of all places, right. And, and start a business. And, I remember this wasn't this wasn't too long ago, probably about five or seven years ago. One of my good friends from France, and a lot of people I talked to who are not from the U.S., they really admire the entrepreneurial spirit in the United States, and I couldn't understand why. I was like, you know, what what's so different? Yeah, here, right? And and one of the things he said was just you know the amount of kind of community and support that you can find here, people who are just really interested in helping each other start small businesses and, and things like that. And then beyond that, another thing I never thought about is just the size of our market. Yes. Right. We have, I think, I want to say the fourth largest population in the world, maybe the third, I think, the third largest population in the world, 300 plus million, right? Yeah. And behind India and China. But we have such a huge market, readily accessible market. You know? Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. And, and again, there's the infrastructure to kind of support that as well. Yes. I'd say like culturally, we are very much a, a free 
market society. Yeah. And that's the reason if you think about ingenuity, you know, and, and with that, you have us creating the internet, right? Yeah. Electricity. It's a lot of things. A lot of things. And I think it's because of our culture, you know, and like, absolutely, like you said, though, there's so much infrastructure that really props it up. But you have loans. And if you file right for your articles of organization, like, you know, there's no like debtor's prison anymore, right? More or less. I mean, I'm sure we can make an argument. But so I think our culture really focuses a lot on entrepreneurial aspects. So I recently finished Einstein's biography um, by Walter Isaacson. And one of the, the quotes that just stuck with me is that he said, the development of science and of the creative activities of the spirit requires a freedom that consists in the independence of thought from restrictions. It, it was just so interesting that we, as obviously as a nation, we really care a lot about freedom, but the implications of that freedom is what fosters the creativity. And I, I just think it's, it's amazing. It is really amazing to be here and be able to start these businesses. And I say that because I, I live in Orange County. Love it. And, you know, this is considered the, the suburbs and you're in Sonoma, like, right? And these places, you look around, you'll find so many businesses. And you're like, you do what? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, surrounding me, there's are just thousands of warehouses. And I would drive by with these signs of names I've never even heard of. And I'm like, you clearly make enough money to have this massive warehouse, you know, here. And it's just crazy. And it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I can't remember how much of our economy is propped up by small businesses. I know it's more than 50%. Yeah. And and I think, you know, what you're doing and, and kind of your thinking behind it too, it, it's something I resonate a lot with. I, I I had come out of house and tried, you know, starting like a tech startup. And it was challenging. It was tough, you know, raising the money and doing all this stuff. But it did bother the heck out of me that, you know, Whenever we try to think about revenue generation or making money, we're discouraged from it. Uh, we're just like, no, like, because it was B2C, they're like, no, just try to get as many users as possible, right? It's not about revenue generation at this point. And I, I get it. There's reasons for that, and, and it works, right, for, for certain types of companies and startups. But did it resonate with me personally? It did not. To this day, my six, most successful businesses have been because I focused on solving a problem that people want to pay money for, right? To me, that is the ultimate validation, right? Right. When somebody gives you a dollar for whatever it is that you create, there's no greater validation than that. What do you think is, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the biggest pitfalls that a lot of like graduates are not seeing right now when they're graduating? You think that they're still like, they're filled with grandiose things of like, okay, you just graduated, you got your MBA, now go start a FinTech, health tech startup, go crush it, but they're not really looking at what you're talking about is this like passion though, right? Like this viable product that at the end, you know. Yeah. I think it goes back to some of the fundamentals I've learned over the past 15 years for me. To me, entrepreneurship is about problem solving, right? At its core, you have to be solving a problem. It's not starting a business for the sake of starting a business. And what I tell people is, you know, it's a, a mindset to be in a problem-solving mode. Because a lot of people I, I meet, they complain about things. Everybody complains about things. But the difference for an entrepreneur is that when you encounter a problem, you don't just bitch and moan about it. You, 
you wonder, <laughs> yeah, is there an opportunity here, right? Because every problem is an opportunity. Yes. And then I learned over the years, there's a couple questions that we should be asking ourselves. One is, you know, how big is this opportunity? How big is this problem? How painful is it, right? Another question I ask is, am I suited to potentially go solve this problem? Do I care, right? Right. If you're telling me tomorrow, like, hey, let's go start a, you know, a bleach cleaning business, I'll be like, no, thanks. I don't care. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you're not going to, you're not going to have that passion to get you through the winter months. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, some other questions like, oh, like, are there existing solutions? And a lot of times there are, but that's not the important thing because the next question following that is, are they good solutions? Right. Is there a potentially better product I could make? And it's like to your point, it's like hot sauce. It's not, you're not reinventing the wheel here, but you know, what else are people demanding that may be different? You know, pairings and things like things that people are just flavor. That's what they're missing. Flavor. Flavor. Other than just straight up spice. Right. Exactly. So what I think here's here's my plug is I think that a lot of people want to have a hot sauce, but like there's a dichotomy that exists between Either it has flavor, but there's no heat, or it's just complete dry heat and there's no flavor. And I really believe that like we created a hot sauce that can pair with your food because it has a lot of flavor up front and then the heat rolls on in the back. So you can still like have your food and not have it be overpowered by the hot sauce. And uh, like you said, the greatest feeling, like the biggest dopamine hit is when I'm doing a demo at a grocery store and like this one gentleman in particular tries it walks away and two minutes comes back and he says hey where can i find that like that like it took him that long for his brain to process it and he was like that hot sauce is amazing and i really want to buy it and i want to buy it right now and he said i said oh uh, you know like let me show you the aisle i said what are you making he's like i'm gonna make fajitas tonight and i just know this is gonna pair really well with it and i was like perfect got him you know what I mean? Like, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. He's already got a meal planned out. He could already envision this hot sauce going well with it. And I love that feeling. I love it when they say that. And obviously, they're buying it from the grocer. So the grocer has their own markup. So I, I only, you know, I'm happy when the grocery store buys it. Yeah. But uh, what we do differently is we roast our peppers. And that is something that you can find out in the market. But um, the amount of, Vegetables that we roast, and this is me coming from a culinary background, creates a lot of caramelization that occurs. So you get like a smoky, sweet hot sauce without any added sugar. We don't go like a cheap route. So there's no powders or stabilizers or preservatives. I think a lot of people can taste the difference. It does mean that it's a more expensive hot sauce relative to like our competitors, but it's also not like completely on the high side where it's like as expensive a trough of like $16. Like you, you can find it for like $9. Yeah. But I can't, I'm never going to win against Crystal or Tabasco or Tapatio where there's a, You never know. You never know. Well, they're <laughs> on the lowest, they could sell a bottle for $2.99. Yeah. Now you always want to have, you know, your big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, maybe in 20, 30 years for sure. Absolutely. Maybe I'm able to create volume. I mean, I, I will say it's so crazy that, you know, obviously before knowing different hot sauces for me, I was like, oh yeah, Tabasco. Right. And then after I learned about Cholula, like. Because what your parents grew up. Right. Yeah. It, that's so institute, like hot sauce is a transitionary good. I'm going to, all right, nerd out again. 
something I really enjoyed from my marketing class at Haas. The case study was about Safeway and Safeway's um, organics product line and like understanding things. And the term that I remembered was a transitionary good. What is a transitionary good? Hot sauce. Hot sauce is a transitionary good because when you're 12, 11, 13, 15, the only hot sauce that you're having is the hot sauce that your parents bought in and that's in the fridge, right? Yeah. Like that's it. Maybe whatever hot sauce is at a restaurant. And even then the restaurants are only going to buy hot sauces that are typically the cheapest because they have to refill it the most, right? Mm. So I learned that hot sauce is like a transitionary good because you're only as a consumer going to really start looking at what hot sauce you want to have when you're like 17, 18 years old and you're going to college or you join the service or whatever, and you don't have a lot of money, but you want to have something that's going to change the flavor profile of your food for relatively cheap, right? Yeah. And then it becomes like an embedded product. And you have like strong customer lifetime value, right? Or loyalty, because that person will associate that hot sauce with this certain particular time with friends or a dish or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And then they stick, yeah, they stick with it. Hot sauce, because it's that kind of thing, like you want to be able to sell to a younger audience because that's what's going to be the biggest thing like down the road. I love it. Well, Cassidy, you know, is there anything else that you want to mention that we didn't get a chance to talk about today? Follow your passion. Everybody should watch the 2005 Stanford commencement address by uh, Steve Jobs that I probably, if there's 15 million views on it, I probably account for 500 of them. If you haven't watched the shot, I implore you to watch it just like his points are absolutely phenomenal. And you can never connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking back. The classic quote, stay hungry, stay foolish, and do what you love, right? And I think that if you have those three understandings, guiding principles, like you will be successful and you will find happiness and, you know, don't ever just settle for something that you think is less than yourself. And that's it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Cassidy. Really enjoyed having you here. I appreciate it, Sean. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. And there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. One Haas Podcast is a production of the Haas School of Business and produced by University FM. Until next time, go Bears.